The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Amanda Hitt. She is the director of the Government Accountability Project's Food Integrity Campaign, which she launched in 2009 to tackle emerging issues in today's industrial food system. The campaign enhances food integrity by facilitating truth-telling and empowering food industry activists and whistleblowers who play a significant role in stopping abuses to animals, people, and our shared environment. Ms. Hitt holds a law degree from the University of Baltimore School of Law and a Master's of Public Health from Johns Hopkins. Her work with Food Integrity Campaign allows her to bridge her passion for social justice, public health, and bringing people together to create meaningful change. The Government Accountability Project is the nation's leading whistleblower protection and advocacy organization. It is nonpartisan, nonprofit, and it litigates whistleblower cases, helps to expose wrongdoing to the public, and actively promotes government and corporate accountability. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm really interested in your work, and I'm very much a proponent. I share your passion for promoting social and environmental justice in our food system. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you came to found the Food Integrity Campaign. Well, it started with a need. Basically, what we were seeing at the Government Accountability Project was we continue to see more and more food whistleblowers, people coming to us with not just problems, but with questions about how they can effectively blow the whistle and make systemic change in their their different working environments, whether that was public or or private. So these people were coming to us, and they were interested in in more and more information, and we saw that there was a need and that there was something more that we could do. And we gathered our resources and collected them into what is now the Food Integrity Campaign. And as you mentioned earlier, that was done in 2009. And so we've been moving along since then and working with food whistleblowers and food activists since that time. Wow. Well, what I love on your website, and I'll just let people know that the Government Accountability Project has a timeline of U.S. whistleblowers, and that's at whistleblower.org. And then, of course, for the Food Integrity Campaign, that is going to be foodwhistleblower.org. But what I found so interesting, Amanda, was in this timeline, I didn't realize that Benjamin Franklin was a whistleblower. And then I went through and I saw, oh, gosh, I remember Julius Chambers. He was America's first investigative, one of America's first investigative journalists who went into New York's Bloomingdale Insane Asylum and published an expose proving patient harm and abuse. And then, of course, there's Upton Sinclair. And then if we go later on, we find out that there were people who were going into the food area where you've got Phyllis McKelvey, a retired USDA Food Safety Inspection Service chicken inspector, talking about what they saw there. And then there's the pink slime case where, again, we're getting a peek inside some of these animal industrial 
facilities where we're seeing what really goes on behind what we put on our plates. So tell me a little bit about some of the cases that you're working on now. Well, I think we're working on a number of of cases. Historically, a, a lot of our work has been with federal meat inspectors, which brings back this thought of Upton Sinclair and and that we still desperately need regulation in in that industry. And one whistleblower comes to mind, his story is really quite amazing, and it's the story of Jim Schreier, who we view as a a successful representation, but his story is, is, is kind of interesting. He's a meat inspector who witnessed terrible animal cruelty at a, a Tyson's facility. Yeah. And he spoke up. He said, you know, hey, there's a problem here. And you'd think that he would have been applauded, right? He's a meat inspector. He's saying, you know, this animal cruelty is, is wrong. But instead, the supervisors had him removed from the plant and not just removed, but transferred 120 miles away from his home. And we were able to work with Jim to get him back home. And we did this through more of a process. So it was a, there was a litigation component where, you know, he, he filed a whistleblower claim. Then, then, then there was a communications effort where we started a, a public petition on change.org to bring Jim home, and his wife actually started that petition, so bring Jim home campaign. And then we also did education around his issue as well. And we were able to work with the USDA to get Jim back home and back with his wife and family who he'd been separated from. Hmm. So is he still inspecting Tyson Foods? He's not at a Tyson plant anymore. Um, I don't think he he would be welcome back, to be quite honest. But he is at a small plant closer to his home and and his wife and his kids and his family. And that's just some of the work that we do. And we represent meat inspectors on similar issues, some having to do with high-speed slaughter and food safety issues that arise from that practice. And so we do a lot of different work that way in that field. Right. And, of course, Jim Schreier is on the list of whistleblowers. And I remember interviewing Ted Genoways, who did a great investigative book called The Chain. And we spoke about the speed at which inspectors have to inspect and approve or not these carcasses. And so in 2012, you describe the poultry inspection where we've got line speeds to the point where inspectors have only a third of a second to view a carcass. And now you've also got a current campaign looking at the hog industry. So let's talk a little bit about that current campaign. Right. So you talked a little bit about poultry, and that was the beginning of this high-speed slaughter at the USDA. They call it HIMP, H-I-M-P. It's an acronym. And it's essentially the very basic setup is that it's reduced inspection and higher line speeds. And really, you don't have to look much deeper into this program at a surface level, a general person can sort of understand that this is a recipe for disaster when it comes to public health. Right. And you're, I mean, you've got food safety issues, you've got environmental issues, you've got worker rights issues, and you've got animal welfare issues all tied up into these high-speed slaughter systems. And Ted Genoways did talk about hemp in his book, and it's an interesting setup. I mean, we're looking at high-speed pork, so we had, I think, a third of a second to inspect poultry, and I think you have 83 pounds per second in pork. So it's it's an uncomfortable scenario, and we hope that it doesn't become a national inspection model. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's say someone is listening who works in the food industry, 
and who is witnessing an abuse, whether it's an abuse of an animal or abuse of workers, what is the correct chain of actions that a person should take in order to correct a wrong? Well, you know, it's kind of a tough question, and I guess that's why there are whistleblower lawyers. (laughs) Because it's a patchwork quilt of laws that might govern an individual working in the food industry. And I'll explain something that just doesn't make sense and that we do need to correct, which is that under current federal law, a private industry that's FDA regulated, a whistleblower is protected by FISMA, which is the Food Safety Modernization Act. Now, if that private individual is working in a, let's say, a beef processing plant or something along those lines. He or she would not be covered under Food Safety Modernization Act and would not have adequate federal whistleblower protections. So that's some of the anomalies that exist. But they get even blurrier. Let's say an individual is a government employee, a federal employee, and he or she works at a beef slaughtering facility, then he or she would be covered under the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. So they would have whistleblower coverage, and they would be able to safely make a disclosure and note that they couldn't be fired for protecting the public's health, for instance, if they saw something that was bad for food safety. Or in the case of Jim Schreier. So Jim was, he's a federal employee. He worked for the federal government and he was able to make his disclosures about animal welfare and was protected under WPEA. So we're not in a situation where everyone is universally covered by whistleblower protections. You would think that we would be, or at least we would hope that people doing the right thing and speaking out and telling the truth would be rewarded, not punished. But unfortunately, that's not the reality. Yeah, it's such a shame. And I'm curious, too, in Jim Schreier's case, so, okay, he was reemployed close to home, But I can't help but wonder what's still going on at the Tyson Food Slaughter Facility. That's something I worry about as well. We still have whistleblowers. We still have people that contact us. But I haven't heard word. And that is, I guess, in some ways, it's not a perfect win. We don't know if that abuse is still ongoing. We'd like to think that the attention that was drawn to that plant would reverse some of their trends toward problematic animal welfare activities. So we would like to think that that the attention that we bring to the issues has some effect. And, you know, I do believe that it does. I think that bringing to light these issues, you know what they say is, you know, sunshine is is the best disinfectant, that you, you shine some light on these things and things change. But here's the deal. I have to be very honest with you. Yeah. I've, been, I've been doing this job for a, a while, and the industry has an interesting way of reacting to being caught with their pants down. If they do something wrong, if if they hurt an animal or they put bad food into commerce, they don't see light shining as a good thing. They see it as we've got to get better at hiding our dirty laundry. Um, So they just get better and better at stopping the light from coming through. And, And a prime example of that is something that the Government Accountability Project works very hard on or an issue that we confront every day is ag gag laws. Right. So that's a situation where whistleblowers come shine the light. And by shine the light, I mean they, you know, they, they show video, right? So there's video of wrongdoing. And instead of the, the company saying, wow, we, you know, we really did something wrong. We need to address our animal welfare protocol. Instead of doing that, they just say, well, we'll make it illegal to catch us. Yeah. And, and, and they have that kind of power. And the food industry is very powerful, and there is a need. It's what I said at the top of the program. You know, we, there is a need. There are people with truths to tell in the food industry, and they need an outlet, 
and that's why the Government Accountability Project and the Food Integrity Campaign exist, to, to give those people a voice. Mm-hmm. As well as legal protection. Well, yeah. you got to have a dog in the fight, right? right. You can't tell windmills without a, a some sort of offense. You know, it's a big deal to go after these giant corporations. Right. And the force of the law is really what needed and necessary. And that's one of the things that we can provide. And I think it's made, you know, I don't think we could do it without it. It's not enough just to tell the truth. You've got to hit hard and you've got to be offensive and you got to, you're, you're going to tick off people. You know, you're going to make people mad. I mean, Purdue's not happy that the Government Accountability Project is representing Craig Watts, who shine the light through video on what does it mean to be antibiotic free and what does good animal welfare look like. He showed in that video that it's not exactly what people, consumers think. It's not consistent with their values and beliefs. It has no integrity. And we supported him when Purdue attacked him for showing that video. And I don't know if everybody's familiar with Craig Watts' case, but he's a Purdue poultry farmer. They call them contract growers. Mm -hmm. And he grows the chickens for Purdue. And Purdue is making all these claims that did, you know, these have great animal welfare. And Craig Watts said, wait a minute, no, you don't. And video was released that showed the truth about what Purdue Farms look like. And Purdue was faced with a big problem, you know, a big PR problem. And Craig Watts got a lawyer, and that was us. And so we were able to help him keep his job throughout all of this. Wow. Listeners, if you are just joining us, you are tuned in to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Amanda Hitt. She is the director of the Government Accountability Project's Food Integrity Campaign, which she launched in 2009 to tackle emerging issues in today's industrial food system. She holds both a law degree from the University of Baltimore School of Law and a Master of Public Health from Johns Hopkins. Well, Amanda, I'd like to go and talk a little bit more about AGAG because I see this as a real problem. You probably know how many states have passed ag-gag laws. I try to keep track of the legislation, but I'm probably not as up-to-date as you are. Do you know how many states now have passed such legislation? So nearly half the states in the United States have proposed such bills. So to give you an idea, so I think it's a, I think we're at 23, and, and five states have passed ag-gag laws, and there's some question over earlier ag-gag laws and whether they should be included, and then there's some question over whether Wyoming's law should be included as ag-gag because there are some nuances that make them different. But when people generally talk about ag-gag, they're talking about a series of laws that sort of came in this cluster around 2012, 2013, and have grown in popularity, and and they've been introduced in state legislatures. And so the laws are kind of simple. They're nuanced from state to state, but at their core, they make it a crime to report a crime, and specifically making it a crime to report a a crime involving factory farming. Hmm. Wouldn't that be a violation of our freedom of speech? I think it's an affront to the Constitution. It's another one. What I do is very simple. I mean, speeding up lines and reducing inspections equal public health problems. Right. That's a fact. And so it's a fact, too, that making it a crime to report a crime is an affront to the Constitution or to common sense, if not that. So different states, are their ag-gag laws are crafted in different ways, and the challenges to those laws are going to be different. But basically, it's the industry's move to try to 
quiet anybody who speaks out against animal welfare issues on these factory farms. I mean, that's plain and simple what it is. And they dress it up in lots of different ways to, you know, it's, you know, protecting the farmers or farmers' rights or something like that. But that's just not true. I mean, what they're trying to stop are these abuses from coming to light. And many of these ag-gag laws are problematic constitutionally, but they morph and change from state to state, which makes them kind of hard to capture, right? Mm. So one state's ag-gag law might be slightly different. It might say that there's a, a mandatory reporting requirement so that if someone sees an abuse to an animal, they have to, within, let's say, 48 hours, you report that to police or, or some sort of authority. So you'd say, okay, well, that sounds good. If you see an animal abuse, you should report it. But the reality is this is these, these folks are clever. The industry is clever, and, the, and their lobbyists are clever. What they've done is they've made it impossible for someone to collect evidence of systemic abuse so that if you do capture an image of, of an isolated animal abuse, it will look as if it is only that, when in fact there are larger scales of problems happening at that facility. And that's what we're trying to stop. We're trying to stop these, the systemic abuse of animals in these factory farms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd think this would be a situation that the Supreme Court would take up, wouldn't you? It would have to get there. I mean, that's the issue. There is currently litigation occurring in, in different states. Specifically, we've got Idaho is back on appeal, and we've got Utah, and North Carolina is probably soon to happen as well. No case has been filed there, but that's a recent ag-gag state that people are looking at. Has anyone gone to jail for that? There was an arrest in Utah, which was, again, it was one of those completely bogus arrests where a woman was, there was a, an ag-gag law and, a, and the woman was found in, in violation or the, the police, I believe, charged her. I don't know if they, ch- actually, I'm not sure if she was charged or not, but so there was a, an ag-gag apprehension, I guess, or if you want to call it that. Right. Or, you know. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we're taught that, it's, I love that expression, you know, if you see something, say something. And certainly I'm thinking about cases where of child welfare, where if a health professional, for example, is aware that a child is being abused, you've got to report it. And it would seem that any time there was abuse, there should be a green light to report it and correct it. And I think, too, with social media, we have such an opportunity to share, to help these videos go viral, and then to have a public shaming for the company that allows this kind of abuse to persist. So I can see why the companies would want to stop that kind of exposure, but at the same time, it just seems like the right thing to do to let people know where abuse exists. It does, right? I mean, you would think as a society, we would all say, like, to, to hand in hand, we would all say, it's, it's let the light shine on wrongdoing. And we would think that that's what we want. And the reality is, too, I think the ASPCA did a survey on this, and they found that overwhelmingly people support these undercover videos and that they're interested in letting the truth out about what's happening on these factory farms. So the people are like you. They want a more transparent system, and they want to know what's really happening with the food that they eat. But the industry is so very powerful, and they have a stranglehold over a lot of these states, and they're able to, state by state, bring about these ag-gag laws. And it's not the will of the people speaking. It's the power of the industry that's showing its might.
Mm-hmm. Well, if you go to, and this is for our listeners, if you go to foodwhistleblower.org, you can click on the food integrity campaign list. So what are the current campaigns that your organization is looking at right now? And, of course, they're all very interesting to me. One of the issues or one of the campaigns that I wanted us to talk about was the biotechnology industry and their pesticide use in Hawaii because I've been following this, the research on some of these pesticides that are being used. And just for people to understand, the largest amount of biotechnology crops are crops that are resistant to pesticide sprays. So on Kauai, you've got some test plots where they are using different restricted pesticides and they are blowing and children are being exposed. They're spraying close to schools and hospitals as well as residential areas. Tell me more about what's going on and what's happened with this campaign. Well, I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you let your listeners in on this Hawaii pesticide situation. Most people think of Hawaii and they think, oh, it's like vacation, right? It's pristine. Yeah. It's perfect. There's nothing going wrong. I was one of those people until a couple of years ago, and I just wasn't aware of what's happening. And specifically, I learned about pesticide spraying in Kauai, which is apparently, as I understand it, is ground zero for this kind of stuff. Um, So this beautiful, pristine island is being assaulted by these biotechs, and nobody's talking about it. I still don't understand. I mean, a few people know about it, but the vast majority of people are unaware that this is happening in Hawaii. And the reason it's happening is Hawaii is in a unique situation that it has this 365-day-a-year growing season. So pesticide, you can test out these GMOs and spray them with these pesticides all year long, constantly. And what's happening is those sprays are not only affecting the workers, which is, you know, a no-brainer. Of course, these people that are exposed to it daily are going to have problems. But it's also blowing into schools and residential areas and hospitals. And the people of Kauai just simply said, we don't want this. And, of course, they don't want this. And so there was this bill, which later became an an ordinance, and it basically, you know, it had a few other provisions, but it, it basically said we need buffer zones between, you know, our schools and these this pesticide spray, which I don't think is a lot to ask, right? I mean, this is happening 365 days a year. But everybody applauded this ordinance, and unfortunately, the industry stepped up, and there was, the decision was made to file a lawsuit that forced Kauai to stop their use of buffer zones, and it was a the biotech companies just essentially filed this this lawsuit and blocked the implementation of the buffer zones, and so that's where we are as far as we're waiting to see the outcome of that. But we decided to look a little more deeply into Kauai and, and what influence the biotech companies had, and what exactly was going on behind the scenes, because that's kind of what food whistleblowing is all about. And we did our version of a Freedom of Information Act request, the Hawaii version, for the Hawaii Department of Agriculture, the Kauai County Mayor's Office as well, to see what the biotechs were doing. And and we did find through that FOIA request that there was a great deal of influence in what had actually transpired in bringing that ordinance to life and making that happen. But it's a mess. And we continue to get phone calls from Hawaii, from healthcare providers, people letting us know that they're seeing patients that are sick and are suffering from exposure. And all of this is happening 
in the United States, I mean, this isn't some foreign land that that we've discounted as a society. This is the United States, and big biotech like Syngenta and, and DuPont and BASF, they're causing a lot of trouble, and they're making a lot of people sick, and they're doing it sort of unabated. And we're monitoring that, and we're working with different whistleblowers from biotech companies and people who are, have been affected by these pesticide sprays to get that information out and to essentially, again, shine some much-needed light on big biotechs. Can these big industries be stopped? I mean, I'm trying to put my feet in the shoes of a mother who might have a child that is attending an elementary school on this island or live in a community where my family is being exposed to these sprays. It seems like there would be so much damage done while we wait for courts to maybe have an impact. And then again, you've got that ag-gag, if that were to take hold, where people wouldn't be allowed to report or even fight some of these cases. It just hurts me to think of children becoming ill and the industry being able to continue these exploitive practices. I think it's unbelievable. I think what's happening, I think the power of the the food industry, I mean, people talk about national security and we talk about powers in the pharmaceutical industry, but the food industry has just so much power and they've got so much power over our legislators. And that's really remarkable. And everybody eats. This affects everyone. I mean, these are issues that concern us all. And the lack of transparency and accountability in, in the food industry is, is really shocking. I mean, it, you said it. I mean, these are children in schools being exposed to pesticide spray, you know. This is a terrible situation. So you don't have to say, well, are GE foods bad for you? Yes, they are. Look what they're doing to these children, exactly. children and, and workers. Of course they're wrong. Of course there's something to be said about them. And people should be speaking their truths. And I hope that more biotech whistleblowers come forward. And I'm very super excited when Dr. Jonathan Lundgren came forward from the USDA. Right. We can't get inside these biotechs to know what's happening. The people that know the truth about what's really happening there, they're pretty quiet and they're content to stay quiet. So when we get folks like Dr. Lundgren that come forward at the USDA, you know, to talk about the problems with insecticides and what they're doing to pollinators, that's good news, and we need more whistleblowers like him, people that know what's happening and speak out, because we have these agencies like the USDA that you'd think would have our best interest at heart, and you'd think that they'd be doing the right thing, and you'd think that they'd be stopping these big biotechs from their disastrous path, you know, from continuing down their disastrous path. You'd think that they would, but it's our government watchdogs who aren't barking, they're just not they're not speaking up on behalf of the people. So we need these whistleblowers within these agencies to come forward and let us know what's really happening. Well, Amanda, I want to thank you so much. Our time is up, but I want to make sure that people know where to find out some more information. So in closing, I want to thank you, Amanda, so much for being my guest. We've been speaking with Amanda Hitt. She is the director of the Government Accountability Project's Food Integrity Campaign. And if you want to learn about the campaigns that they are currently investigating or if you want to get in touch with Amanda Hitt herself and 
perhaps report something that you have witnessed, the website is www.foodwhistleblower.org, and we will provide a link for that. Amanda, I want to thank you for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for your work, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you.